0: Hello and welcome everyone to a special edition of Asia in Depth. I'm Tom Nagorski, Executive Vice President of the Asia Society. Uh, Today, a conversation about the coronavirus, uh, the outbreak, uh, the spread of the virus, uh, and the efforts in China and around the world now to contain that spread. Uh, The coronavirus, as most of you may know, has quickly emerged as China's biggest public health crisis since the SARS outbreak nearly two decades ago. As of this morning, as we speak, the World Health Organization has confirmed more than 7,700 cases, the vast majority of those in Wuhan, a city of more than 11 million people in China. 170 deaths reported, all of those in China. There have been cases reported in more than a dozen other countries, including a few in the United States. Relatively speaking, a low number, 68 cases outside China, and again, no fatalities outside China. Meanwhile, the responses included what may be an unprecedented shutdown of a major metropolis, the city of Wuhan, air and train travel severely curtailed in China, and now restrictions on travel to and from China, even when Wuhan is not part of the itinerary. There have been new developments almost by the hour, and so we're very grateful today to have a top expert with us, Dr. Thomas Inglesby, Director of the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, which works to limit the consequences of public health epidemics. Dr. Inglesby has all kinds of experience that's relevant to this conversation, in particular preparing for pandemics and responding to them. He's worked recently on biosafety projects with public health officials in China. Uh, and Tom joins us by phone uh, from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore today. Uh, so, Tom Inglesby, thanks so much for being here. And as I said, there's so much to cover, uh, and we thought perhaps it'd be best if you can just start by giving us uh, your own overview of what you think are the most important questions of the moment, and, uh, and the most important areas you and your team feel uh, we all ought to be watching for, whether we're public health officials or not, uh, in the days and weeks to come. I'll turn it over to you.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Thomas. <clears throat> yeah, just starting with some of the really uh, kind of important fundamentals of what's going on, uh, in the end, the impact of this outbreak will really be driven by the overall case fatality rate and clinical severity of the illness, which is uncertain, and I'll come back to that, and the rate of spread of the virus, which is also uncertain, and I'll come back to that. And the third variable, which is kind of a subset of the first, is who is most at risk? And we have a little bit of information about that. It seems like in the first 400 cases that have been detailed. Uh, Last night, there was a publication that came out that provided more information about them. We see that the people who are most at risk uh, are older. Um, They're more men than women, but that's kind of, you know, it's hard to know exactly why that is. It may have been they were exposed as opposed to a susceptibility, and very few children have been recognized to have the disease so far. So it seems like the disease is trending towards Older people, some of whom had underlying medical conditions, some of whom did not. And uh, we're going to learn a lot more about who's at risk in the time ahead. But skipping back to the first question, what is the overall severity of this illness? That's a, a, a very fundamental question. And in, in new outbreaks, it takes time to sort that out. Right now, we see 170 deaths, 7,700 confirmed cases in China, that's a fatality rate uh, in the order of two and a half percent. And that has come down even in the last week from a fatality rate initially with the first 40 patients reported of something like 15 percent. And that's normal in kind of in looking at new outbreaks because we see the most serious people first. We see the ones that get into intensive care units, the ones that die first. And it's hard to recognize all of the mild illness that's walking around and not yet diagnosed. So everyone working on this outbreak expects the case fatality rate to go down and possibly down fairly dramatically if there are many, many mild cases walking around that we haven't had a chance to diagnose or recognize yet. Just as points of comparison, kind of bookends for people to think about, with SARS, the case fatality, another coronavirus that's relatively closely related to this one, that had a case fatality rate of about 10%. Of the 8,000 people that we know that were sick with SARS, about 10% of them died. At the other end of the spectrum, of the very mild side of illness, every year we have seasonal influenza that rolls around the earth, and we can't stop it from spreading, and all every part of the world gets seasonal flu. And on average, that kills about one in 10,000 people. So .01%. So it's a very dramatic range Uh, For respiratory illnesses, all the way up to 10%, from all the way down to 0.01%. We don't know where this new coronavirus will fall. It doesn't look like it's going to be a severe SARS. That's good. The case fatality rate keeps dropping. Will it drop all the way down to something that's closer to seasonal influenza, a completely unrelated virus? Maybe, Um, but we don't know. Maybe it'll maybe it'll stop somewhere in the middle, and that will really affect. Planning around the world as this evolves, because if it's if it's one in ten thousand people, then the world has has the ability to deal with that kind of impact with seasonal flu. If it's one in a thousand people, ten times more serious, then that's going to cause a, a whole different sort of pressure on healthcare systems and public health systems around the world. So that's one big uncertainty. We need more data and more time to resolve that, and that is coming out over time. Hopefully in the, in the weeks and months ahead, we'll get more and more information, and we'll be able to get more resolution on that. The second variable I talked about at the beginning, the rate of spread of this illness. was again, using the bookends of SARS and seasonal flu, just to kind of explain the, you know, the different possibilities. Seasonal flu spreads very, in very efficiently around the world, person to person. We don't even recognize when it's spreading. Some people don't get ill, but they still spread the disease onward. So there's really no public health intervention that can contain seasonal flu or that can really stop it. We might be able to slow its its impact down in a given city, maybe if we close schools or cancel big gatherings, but seasonal flu is going to spread around the world every year as it always does. On the other end of the spectrum was SARS, which again, limited to only 8,000 patients uh, and was really spread most efficiently within hospitals, uh, healthcare infections, nurses and doctors especially, but other patients within hospitals got infected. It also spread, there were other occasions within families or within specific buildings where the engineering design wasn't good uh, that there were outbreaks of cases, but for the most part, isolating patients, and simple public health interventions when they were all combined were able to contain SARS. We don't know yet where we are on the spectrum between SARS and flu in terms of the ability for this virus to spread. It certainly looks much more capable of sustained transmission than SARS. We already have exceeded the number of patients that Uh, uh, in China uh, that had SARS at that time, and the rate is going up pretty substantially every day. And it, it, it looks like the majority of the transmission is in the community and not in the hospital, which is worrisome. So it does look like this disease is spreading pretty efficiently in China right now, and it's not clear that the containment measures that have been put in place has significantly changed the course of that yet. But whether it will prove to be as efficient in spreading as something like seasonal flu or something in between also is going to require more data, more data to be released by the Chinese public health authorities, more examination, and more time. So at this point, the strategy within China and in the rest of the world continues to be attempts to contain this virus where it is. And... The mainstays of that are isolating people, diagnosing them, caring for them if they're sick, and making sure that we don't get hospitals infected and healthcare workers infected in the process. That's, that's the bread and butter for any respiratory transmission, any respiratory transmitted virus, including this new one. Whether that will be enough to stop it where it is now is not clear to me and to others. And we can talk about that on this call. But that is the strategy uh, at the moment and in the U.S. and other countries that have been receiving flights from China. uh, The strategy so far has been to screen patients who are initially who are arriving from Wuhan. And now, uh, in many places, it's now being expanded to travelers coming from any part of China and to give them, if possible, to, to take their temperature at the airport give them a questionnaire, see if they've had any of the symptoms that we worry about. And even if they're not ill at the airport, they now know where to report if they do become ill after traveling and, and can go into the hospital and be diagnosed there.
0: I, I know you've spoken uh, or, or written in the last few days about your thoughts on the, the big sort of massive response of the quarantine of Wuhan itself yeah. Uh, as I said at the outset, maybe an unprecedented move by any country in terms mm-hmm. of the size and the scope of that, city of 11 million. But so much of what you just outlined about uh, case mortality, rate of spread and all that depends obviously on good information. And I think you said that you've yeah. been able or, or authorities, uh, public health officials have been able to analyze about 400 cases. Can you speak a little bit about your ability to get the information you need as public health experts, and, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, what's missing in terms of information coming out of China? Are you confident that it's that, that flow is, is good to help uh, people like yourself make the judgments you have to make?
1: Uh, I think it's varied. I think it's much different than it was uh, two decades ago with SARS when there was a lot of withholding information and very, very slow communication about what was going on. I think that's different. We've seen Xi Jinping, you know, from the top, say that he wants full communication with the international community. Um, but in the beginning of this outbreak, there clearly was—I um, don't know if I want to call it suppression or just kind of lack of communication about what was actually happening. I think that's changed uh, in the last week, they've or two weeks. They've invited the World Health Organization in uh, today. Um, there's a, a trip being planned by U.S. CDC to China at the invitation of China, which is, which is new, um, even though CDC, U.S. CDC has asked a couple of times to come over, and uh, I think today or yesterday evening was the first time that that invitation was accepted. Um, so there is, there's more and more openness. The, the information that's needed is really to kind of – is more detail on how this is spreading, We've had only a few relatively small reports about the evidence of how it's spreading within a community and whether there's, there are additional chances for interruption of spread. We also need more information about the clinical experience of the patients. Why are these patients dying? Are they all dying of the same kind of phenomenon? Do they have, as we get more information, do they have risk factors that are beginning to be drawn out? Are there any medical interventions that are being tried in the first patients that have any value? That would help us get a better sense of case fatality rate and get a better sense of the patterns of spread. So those things are important. And the other thing we need to know about at a high level is what is the overall disease surveillance strategy now in China? At this point, we, China has been appropriately focusing on diagnosing this illness in Wuhan and in travelers that have left Wuhan and gone to other parts of China or other parts of the world. But we now see that there are cases in essentially all, almost all provinces in China, if not all. And it's not clear yet to uh, people outside of China whether testing is going on inside those provinces even if you haven't been to Wuhan. Is it possible that this disease is even more widespread than we know? It's not, it's not possible to know that without diagnostic testing. There's no way to recognize these patients walking into an ER because they look like any other kind of pneumonia or respiratory infection, so they have to really get that specific diagnostic test. And it's not clear yet whether that testing is really going on around China or only in people who've been to Wuhan. So that's another key bit of information. And um, it is possible that the throughput for testing is not big enough in China at this point to be able to test beyond Wuhan. They're testing thousands of people a day. And that may be the limit of their testing capacity. And it certainly far exceeds what the US is able to do just yet uh, in our own capacity. But I, in a in a um, in a better world, we would know more about what else is happening in China and other places.
0: So you used the phrase well, two interesting phrases: interruption of spread and then disease surveillance strategy. Yeah. Uh, on the first, uh, you have said some things about quarantine, which again, I, I you know, speaking for myself, seemed like a sort of colossally very Chinese, if you will massive uh, step that, I, that you know, the layperson would imagine, well, that's going to at least contain things there and uh, maybe is draconian, but I think you had some, some thoughts that, uh, well, why don't you say what your thoughts were yeah. vis-a-vis the, the, the initial uh, quarantine?
1: Yeah, well, a quarantine on the size of what happened in Wuhan's never happened before um, historically. Uh, nothing like that's been tried. Uh, and in the past, we, with the experience with larger scale quarantines has not been good. Uh, it has interfered with the ability of doctors and nurses and public health people to find illnesses, to isolate people, to care for them. It basically creates a lot of disruption. And it also, in some, in many cases in the past, has created fear in those being quarantined and led to people kind of fleeing the quarantine before the authorities can constrain them. And so it, it risks and has shown been shown in the past in other places to send cases underground, at least for a time, who don't want to be seen, you know, don't want to be found because they're afraid of what might happen to them. And so my concerns were mostly around that. I have a s- second concerns around the logistics of of quarantining 11 million people and ensuring that they can get their you know, food and basic necessities and medicines for daily use. Um, that's all another set of important matters that the government now has to manage and may detract from or interfere with their ability to contain the disease. It's possible that China is the place in the world where they could, you know, manage something like this on such a massive scale. I think it's, a new, it's an experiment, but I do have concerns that um, it could get in the way of the stuff that they're trying to do to contain it. And we know that millions of people left Wuhan before, this camp, the, before the quarantine started. Uh, so, and there were cases already in provinces around China. So it's, it, at the best case scenario, it's a very partial, partial intervention and I just uh, – my hope is that there's a, there is self-assessment going on to make sure that it's not interfering with what they are trying to do otherwise to contain it.
0: Now, one of the most worrisome things I think you've just said uh, has to do with, with testing capacity, as I think you put it, meaning – so uh, for all the assets that they may have, it sounds like you're saying their ability to test thousands and thousands of people. And I would imagine, and we've seen news reports to this effect, that – Uh, understandably, if you live in Wuhan, uh, or maybe other parts of Hubei province and you just get a cold or a cough or, or what have you, uh, people are heading to emergency rooms, which actually is not an uncommon thing to do in the Chinese healthcare system anyway. So, what's, is there something the, the, that world can do, that public health organizations or countries can do to help with this, or is that just, uh, you said, "I think this might overwhelm the United States as well were it to come here."
1: Um, yeah, it's, this is not really a science problem per se. I mean, the science has been worked out pretty well on how to diagnose the illness with relatively routine uh, PCR or genomic testing. Uh, it is really a a capacity. It's like a it's a, a let's just call it an equipment or medical material capacity problem. And China, to their credit, was able to ramp up from modest numbers of test kits being available per day to 2,000 people being um, tested a day. That was a week ago. It is, they have not announced new numbers, so it may be that they've been able to ramp up even further. And I think they'll probably give an update maybe today or tomorrow about how many people they're testing. So it is, a, in theory, with enough industrial capacity and focus and funding to the, di- to the companies that can create diagnostic test kits this should be able to be scaled up. It's not a, it's not a scarce resource per se, but you have, to, you have to enlist the companies that can make diagnostic tests and make sure that they are convinced you're going to pay for that work. Um, in past outbreaks in the world, uh, governments have kind of led some companies along and then they drop them halfway through when they decide it's no longer urgent enough. So it's a risk for companies to get involved in this kind of emergency. The governments around the world are very uncertain partners. But presuming we can get over that and governments show their full intent, it should be possible to scale up diagnostic testing. The U.S. is trying to scale its testing up. FDA made an announcement yesterday that it's now seeking all proposals from diagnostic uh, companies to try and come up with new solutions that are rapid. Um, We just need many different strategies to try and scale that up within China and elsewhere in the world. Because if this spreads, this won't be a China diagnostic testing problem. It will be a testing problem for the U.S. and for all countries that have cases.
0: Right. Well, that's a good segue because I I thought we should take this conversation out of the, you know, hot zone, if you will, of of Wuhan and Hebei and and maybe China and just talk about uh, global reaction. And, again, this may go to your point of overreaction, underreaction, I don't know. Um, Back to the numbers. Uh, again, as we speak, 7,711 cases, I believe, um, and 68 cases that have been recorded outside China and no fatalities outside China. But again, out of abundance of caution, and I imagine these are, uh, in some cases, political judgments as well as public health judgments, we have some airlines shutting down travel to China. We have... Uh, uh, the government of Russia talking about sealing off big parts of its border. What are your thoughts about um, about the global response in that regard, and also just global travel uh, um, to China, out of China? Uh, uh, any yeah. thoughts about that would be helpful.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is this is the same story in every new outbreak, which is um, the problem of underreaction or overreaction, and it's. It's a problem because of the uncertainty. I mean, in any outbreak, it's always an evolving story that requires a lot of information about people before you know if this is gonna be, in the end, be mild or something that's you know, very, very serious, like SARS, that might be able to spread more efficiently. And so because of the uncertainty and because we don't know where on the spectrum this will fall, it seems appropriate to me that for a time at a minimum, we should be doing screening of people from from China, special focus on Wuhan. But I think soon we really would need to have a focus on uh, at least a a questionnaire for arrivals from China that say, if you have any of these symptoms, please report to this place and call this number. So people are very well informed um, <clears throat> in terms of travel to China. I think the problem, there are a lot of practical problems in addition to kind of the public health problems. The first, there there are different reasons why flights to China will not run. The first is if if a government says they can't go, and that hasn't happened yet in the U.S., they've advised travelers to not travel to Wuhan and uh, to uh, minimize travel to other parts of China. Um, on an as-needed basis, but but airlines themselves are making their own decisions, which are not government decisions, and they're basing their decisions on safety of their crew. Even if it's a perception that it's a small risk, they may decide on their own within that company that they don't understand that risk enough to continue for a while. and They may decide just to temporarily stop flights.
0: Which and I assume their and I assume their employees are are probably asking all these same questions, right?
1: Exactly, right. They they end up having, you know, they're going to cities in China. They don't understand if disease is being, are, are we doing surveillance in this city where we're going? Do we know much about what's going on in this place? They've seen what's happened in Wuhan, where there was a, a basically a no-notice quarantine of the whole city, and people became stuck there. Americans became stuck there. Others became stuck there. So there's a lot of uncertainty about what, the Chinese government will do to try and control this disease, and maybe there'll be quarantines in other cities. So there's government action, there's airline action, and then if there's if people vote with their feet, and you know the, the airlines were going to fly, but they only get five percent of their ten percent of their seats full, then at some point they're going to stop flying anyway for business reasons. Right. Right. So I think the, all the, the cancellation of flights, <clears throat> excuse me, is probably a mix of all of those things. And it's going to be complica- a complicated mix until there's more clarity about the epidemic.
0: Can you speak, Tom, uh, about the significance of some of the cases uh, that have been reported in countries, I, I think just in the last few days, where the, the person in question who's been diagnosed yeah. was not himself or herself in China, I believe, just to take a case. Now, there was a case in Japan. It was a bus driver who happened to have driven tour groups from Wuhan in taiwan a woman who's, uh, a man whose wife had been in wuhan but how significant is it or isn't it that uh, you have people in other countries who don't themse- haven't themselves just returned from from wuhan or, or china
1: it is significant it is a sign of the efficiency of transmission of this disease I and mean, we we kind of know that already from china i mean it's not surprising um, you see how much community transmission there is in China happening. It would be surprising if it isn't going to happen in other places. But we have – when you only have one or two cases in your country or a limited number of cases in your country you can real and you know who they are, there is a chance to isolate them effectively and to try and control the spread of disease. So it's not to say that just because we've had a, a case – transmitted in Japan, for example, that things are gonna get completely out of hand. Um, The numbers seem to be very small and they've been identified and they can be isolated. Uh, But it is a sign that that community transmission is a risk everywhere in the world at this point. It's basically, you know, it's, uh, we don't want new chains of transmission to begin in other places as we're trying to control it in China. so I, I, it's, it's notable. It's not surprising. It is good news that there have been no, or, or maybe no, maybe just a few serious cases of illness outside of China. We have cases in various places in the world, but none of them have died. Right. And so there's a lot of question about well, why is that? Is that because there's something else going on in China? There's, the system's overwhelmed. It can't care for all of its people. Uh, or it's exposing more susceptible older people in China. We don't really know yet, um, but it, and it's, it's at least some reassurance that the initial cases that we've seen outside of China seem to be doing very well.
0: And is it also the case, to your knowledge, that there are not cases outside of the country with sort of no connection whatsoever, in other words, right. not the bus driver, not the husband, right? Is that the, That's is correct. That the case?
1: So far, um, there have been a little – there has been a rumor or two that in Thailand it's, there may be a case or two that have been unexplained by any kind of close contact with a, with a Chinese traveler, uh, but nothing proven yet. So at this point but – but we would also should say that it's not clear that anyone is getting tested outside of right. travelers. So I don't know that we would know um, if that – we can't – we cannot have a confidence that there are no cases, but it is true that there have been no proven cases or perhaps one or two in Thailand that we know about so far.
0: So among other things, this is a great window, Tom Engelsby, into how difficult your work is and your colleagues. When would we know, when would you know with any confidence that, that this is, Is ebbing and and that, you know, these measures can be lifted a little bit in a a situation like this. Is it when that, uh, you know, just the the, the new cases or the fatality rates drops? I mean, is there a tipping point in in a good direction uh, as you watch these uh, these developments?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I think the tipping point in the direction of clinical severity would be if we got to a point where it became clear that the case fatality rate of this illness is something on the order of seasonal flu or less, then I think we could at least communicate that broadly and people would begin to be less fearful and take less draconian action, possibly. It wouldn't be that there's zero risk from this disease, but that for the great majority of people, it's gonna be mild. That would be pretty important time. It's gonna take a lot more patience for that to happen if things go in the right direction. Um, In terms of spread, the good news would be if the number of new cases daily dropped dramatically in China and the number of cases that were appearing at other airports in the world that have traveled with China uh, was dropping dramatically. Um, And right now the the trends are are really in the opposite direction for now. So I think until that happens, there's going to be – High concern that this is going to continue to spread, uh, and that containment efforts really need to be at full speed. And we'll see how they go.
0: Doctor Thomas Inglesby joined us from the Center for Health Security of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where he serves as director. That'll do it for this week's episode of Asia in Depth. You can check out our show page at asiasociety.org/podcast. That's asiasociety.org/podcast. And keep up with what's going on with us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. I'm Tom Nagorski. We'll see you next time.